0: There's a lot here. and There are a lot of, of verses that you probably uh, latched onto. We're not going to cover it all. I wish we could. 14 is a very long chapter. We are. We're going to laser focus, though. Uh, and we're going to laser focus on clarity. When I read this passage and when I read this passage, it reminds me of a comedy sketch. Um, I think back to a comedy sketch in which Ed Asner was a retiring nuclear scientist. And he was on his last day and everybody was giving him a party and uh, congratulating him on a a lifetime of service. And uh, during the party, someone said, do you have any words of wisdom for us on how to carry on when you leave? And he said, yes, I have these words of wisdom for you. You can't mix too much water in the reactor. And they all nodded at his wisdom. And then he left. Not long after that, it came time to mix the water. And so as they began to go through that process, they asked the question, okay, wait a minute, did he mean you can't put enough water in the reactor or that you shouldn't put too much water in the reactor? And so one group of scientists argued with the other group of scientists on just how much water you put into a reactor. And they went back and forth and back and forth, trying to interpret exactly what he meant. Well, at the end of the comedy sketch, the very dark comedy sketch, you see a nuclear cloud appearing on the horizon. (laughs) As they made the very wrong decision, um, eventually, and it caused a meltdown. As funny as that sketch was, it really does bring up a very... Good point, and a point I think that is being considered here in First Corinthians 14. There's, the clarity of the message must ring true. It must be very clear. If it's not clear, there's a danger. If in our churches the message of Christ is not clear, there's a grave spiritual danger for those who are members of our congregation. The Apostle Paul In 1 Corinthians 14 highlights the importance of clarity when it regards the message of Christ. And he insists that in public meetings of the church, the message of Christ must be clear. Look at verses 6 through 12 again. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge of prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? So with yourselves, since you were eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Now, we're not sure if Paul's talking about angelic tongues here, as he was in 1 Corinthians 13, or if he's talking about the supernatural ability to speak foreign languages, as you see here in verses 10 and 11, and also in Acts, when, when they spoke in tongues, everyone heard the gospel in their own language. Regardless of of whether it is an angelic tongue or a foreign tongue, the concern is the same. If what is being spoken cannot be understood, then the message of Christ and the gospel is going to be murky. And if the gospel of Christ is murky, there's a great danger. Paul uses a twofold illustration to drive home the lack of clarity here in communication. In verses 7 and 8, he points out that if you're just playing random notes, even If in your mind you're playing a specific song, it's lost on everyone else. They don't know what you're intending to play. In verse 8 in particular, he points out how dangerous this is. If you sound a call to war on the horn, but it sounds like some sort of jazz number, nobody's going to actually take the alert seriously. People aren't going to know that it is a call to war, and they won't be able to respond to the attack. Like with our nuclear power plant example, lack of clarity can be, few, can, can be confusing and dangerous. So the message of Christ must be clear. But there are more reasons to pursue clear communication than just danger. And Paul unpacks these in chapter 14. The message of Christ must be clear because the clear message evidences first that God is not a God of confusion. In verse 33, Paul says, For God is not a God of confusion... But a God of peace. Of all the reasons, the message should be clear, this is the core of it. How we behave in church, how we worship reflects something of who God is. When there is a for there, you've got to ask what the for is there for. And so in verses 26 through 32, Paul is talking about the traffic jam of everyone wanting to share. He says, What then, brothers, when you come together, Each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at the most three, and each in turn. And let someone interpret. But if there's no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. So, what he's describing here could be and has the potential to be a cacophony of sounds where everyone's just talking at the same time and no one's really hearing anything. Where the most important thing in that meeting is to feel something or to get revved up and not actually hear the message of Jesus Christ. Now, I'd like to say that 2,000 years away from this particular passage, our churches are not like this anymore. But that's not true. More so in this generation than I think in the past generations, you have a generation of people who are looking to experience, to validate truth. There's nothing wrong with experience. There's nothing wrong with spiritual experience. But spiritual experience, in and of itself, is not enough. You must have the Word of God. There must be clarity in teaching. Otherwise, it sounds discordant like a bunch of middle schoolers getting ready to play in a jazz band, warming up their instruments with all the different notes. There's nothing really to, to listen to. There's no music to really be heard. This point was drove home, driven home for me as I chaperoned a middle school band competition. <laughs> and there we were after a very long day where the bus broke down. <laughs> we were uh, late, so they couldn't put on their uniforms, so they looked like a coherent band. And the jazz band took the stage And they all started warming up. And they sounded like what my my father would say would sound like a dying cow in a hailstorm. Just all the discordant horns. But then their band director stepped up, lifted his baton, everyone got silent, gave them a few points of direction, and then he led them in all at the same time playing together the right notes and it sounded beautiful. In fact, they won. But it's because they were the conductor was having them all move together at the same time, playing the same notes. When people walk into our church, what they should be struck by is that God is a God of order. You see, if no one ever stood up and tapped and got the attention, those students would have just continued to play random notes. The idea that our worship is orderly and our worship points to Jesus Christ gives some evidence to the fact that there is a God who is is there, who is marshalling all of the churches around the world To glorify himself. His people to glorify himself. And though we do not see him. The fact that. These men and women. Use their gifts. Towards the same goal. Of the glorification of Jesus Christ. Shows that there is a conductor there. In fact. It testifies to the God of scripture. Who in starting even in Genesis 1, is so orderly that he takes every day and and orders it perfectly in creation. And in redemption, he unpacks and unfolds that precisely and orderly and brings Christ at just the right time in human history. Our worship of, of Christ the message should reflect that kind of God. He's not a God of confusion. He's not a God of chaos. He's a God of order. But second, it exemplifies our pursuit of love. Chapter 14 builds off of chapter 13, which has the theme of love, and it builds off of the overall themes found in 1 Corinthians. And one thing that is striking about 1 Corinthians, the 1 Corinthians church is their underlying sense of division, elitism, and the sense of partiality. From the very beginning, we hear that the people are following either Paul, Cephas, Apollos, and factions. The central issue in other chapters is the abuse of the Lord's Supper, which is an abuse that has some church members thinking they're better than other church members and rushing ahead of them and taking their own communion and ignoring the body of Christ. We also see chapters that reflect on all the parts of Christ's body and how important they all are. 1 Corinthians builds to this point. Another divisive issue is the use of gifts. It's clear from the context of the passage that though the gifts' evidence might or might not be legitimate gifts, depending on if there's an interpreter, the gifts in question here tended to be more of a spectacle and a point to the individual and point to the individual rather than bless the church. And Paul's concern is there too. In previous chapter, Paul says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It doesn't take much to read between the lines that even in gifts, even in the ecstatic gifts, there was division, producing impatience, unkindness, envy, boasting, arrogance, and rudeness, and wanting its own way. One can easily see how a group of people who had either the ecstatic gifts of speaking tongues or the supernatural ability to speak other languages could become a spectacle and consider themselves better than others. Is there not a tendency to elevate even those in the church who have public gifts? We do it all the time, don't we? Nothing against those who sing well or preach well or teach well But we we tend to extol them over the ones that serve, care for, and show hospitality, and sometimes make them into little celebrities. That is not what God has called us to do. Our gifts do not point to ourselves. Our gifts point to Christ. And the whole point of Christ giving us those gifts is to glorify him in the church to be arrows pointing back to him. It is Christ who served the disciples and washed their feet to show them how they were to lead. This is what it means in verse 1 when Paul, right out of the gate in this chapter, says, pursue love as they exercise their spiritual gifts. Because spiritual gifts can be exercised without love in a sense of elitism. And it can cause division. But those gifts aren't meant to divide. Those gifts are meant to build up the church, which is the next reason why it is important that the message be clear, because the clear message edifies the church. In verses 3 through 5, Paul says, On the other hand, the one who prophecies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophecies builds up the church now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophecy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, before we go any further, we need to address the issue of semantic noise. In communication, semantic noise is either ambiguity in meaning of a phrase or different meanings of a word. In the case of the phrase, you can't put too much water in the reactor, you have an issue of semantic noise. But when you go to a place like Great Britain, you might encounter semantic noise in a different way. Though they're speaking English, and I'm glad Stu is here because he can keep me accountable on this, typically there is completely a completely different meaning to a word. For example, if you were to go to a funeral in England, and someone was to say, are you going to wear something out of the casket for the funeral? You might absolutely be horrified until you learn that casket is what you call a jewelry box in England. Or while you're in the UK, you're invited to a party and you're told to dress fancy and you show up in a nice suit and dress that you've chosen out of the casket, by the way, uh, to wear such as a nice watch or pearls out of the casket. And you show up and then you arrive and you notice the partygoers are dressed informally or in costume because dressing fancy means something different. there. Fair. Now, this can even happen in America. When I lived in the Midwest, when I lived in St. Louis, I longed for home cooking. Because, first of all, you can't get sweet tea. You couldn't get sweet tea or grits when you lived in St. Louis. You just couldn't. In fact, people would come over to our house to have sweet tea. It was like a little embassy of the South over at our home. And um, one of the things that you could not find, you could find all kinds of KC Masterpiece Kansas City ribs in St. Louis. Because you're within striking districts of uh, Kansas City. But what you could not find very easily was pulled pork barbecue. And the th- as it goes, when, when you can't find it, you long for it. So I had this longing for pulled pork barbecue. And I remember driving by church one day and it said free barbecue on Sunday. And I got so excited. I told my wife, we're going to that church, and we're going to get some free barbecue. We drove up, and to my horror, they were grilling hamburgers and hot dogs. Now, I understand if you call that barbecuing, even though that's really grilling. We all know that it's grilling. I understand if you want to call that barbecue, but don't call the results of grilling barbecue. It got me looking for something that just wasn't there. And I became the victim of semantic noise. So why am I telling you all that? Because there is some semantic noise here with the word prophecy. And I want to clear that up. When we read this, I know that many of us get the picture of someone who has got a crystal ball and is foretelling the future. Now, in the early church, they did have people who spoke prophetic foretelling words. That is absolutely true. But there's another meaning of the word prophecy that is more than foretelling. It's forthtelling. It's speaking the word. It's challenging with the word of God. It's speaking the thus saith the lords of scripture. And though there was certainly space in the early church for prophetic foretelling utterances when the canon of the New Testament was being written, The context here sounds much more like the preaching of the word. And why do I say that? Because Paul makes a big deal that we are to be edified. And it is the word of God that builds us up and edifies us. Now, let me take a moment here. While this message is meant to focus particularly on the importance of clear communication... I think it's important to lay down a few warnings. There are some who believe that the ecstatic gifts of of the Spirit, such as angelic tongues and foretelling prophecy, have ceased. and That term, uh, for those people, is cessationists. There are some that believe that the ecstatic gifts of the Spirit, such as angelic tongues and prophecy, continue, and those are called non-cessationists. Whichever camp you might fall in, both agree on the same thing. Revelation has ceased. What does that mean? Some of you want to throw stones at me right now. Um, we all experience times where God speaks to us. He speaks to us through his word. He guides us through his spirit. That is not revelation. I remember a time when I was sitting in a, in a session of elders, and there was actually a very vocal debate between one of the elders and the pastor on this. And um, he kept saying, God speaks to me. He speaks to me through his word. And he, and he points my heart away from sin. And, he, and the pastor goes, that is not revelation. That is illumination. Illumination is the spirit binding with the word of God in our hearts, taking that word and teaching us, guiding us, correcting us, rebuking us. He is active. He is active within us. He teaches us. He trains us. He guides us. He guides us through other people. But here's the difference between illumination and revelation. Revelation is a new word. It tells you something brand new that no one's ever heard of about God. And the danger in that is this. When you claim to have that gift, you are this far short of being Muhammad. You are this far short of being Joseph Smith, who said, The word we have is not enough. I'm adding to it. The word is not to be added to. The word is not to be taken away from. God, in his sovereignty, has given us all we need. Now, you might go to scripture and say, Well, it doesn't say anything about this, about this, or about this. The spirit leads us into all truth, taking. Incidences from Scripture and applying them to our hearts. He helps give us wisdom. Even though God's Word doesn't talk about cell phones, He talks about idols. So even though we don't see that in, in the Word, we can learn from the Word. But we just must draw the line at Revelation. It is not edifying to the church. It is not building up of the church to say that the word of God, the 66 books of the Bible that he's given us is not enough and to go searching for some other word, some other means. Because what happens is you cross the line into divination instead of following the spirit and truth. And that is, does not build up God's church. It seeks more of an experience than it seeks to glorify and rejoice in who God is. So we must have a clear message so that we can be edified. But finally, we must have a clear message because it evinces the truth to unbelievers Verses 23 through 25. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What is Paul saying? Tongues might get their attention, whether it is ecstatic tongues or tongues in another language. But it can do nothing of what the Word can do in in bringing someone to their knees. Paul points out here that the Word of God preached with the Holy Spirit in our heart, applies it to our hearts. And it must be understood, and it must be clear. If a bunch of Christians are in a meeting, speaking French, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, etc., at the same time, and someone walks in, they're not even going to understand what's going on. Convert In the same light, if if there's ecstatic tongues, and everyone's speaking in a confusing language, and someone walks in, what are they going to really hear? If outsiders and unbelievers hear ecstatic prophecy, then they might be baffled. But they won't hear the only truth that can save their souls. I love what verses 24 and 25 say. But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Have you ever experienced that moment? that are talking about here when someone preaches the word of God and even it speaks directly to you and you feel like they're reading your mail or your email or for the younger people in here, text messages. That's what Paul's talking about. The spirit works through the preached word, even in our um, one-on-one exhortations to one another, to convict the heart of unbelievers, to convict our hearts. And I want to challenge an idea this morning, so bear with me. I've challenged quite a few ideas this morning, so you're still bearing with me. No one's walked out just yet. Now, I think there's scriptural warrant with the words of Paul here to regard, in regard to outsiders and unbelievers to, to, to talk a little bit about seeker-sensitive services. And there's been much made of seeker-sensitive services. On a positive note, I like to say this. Um, if we use insider jargon and language sometimes we can sound like we're speaking a foreign language. So I I believe that, yes, we must be clear. We must be able to break down the truths of God so that everyone can understand them. But also in the spirit of verses 24 and 25, it isn't a convoluted or watered-down message. That's not what the unbeliever is hearing here. It's. I say this with all, all humility. If we are tempted to dumb things down, to offer nice principles instead of preaching Christ, then we're not doing what Paul is asking us to do here. We're not edifying the church. We're not winning the unbeliever. Why do I say that? Because we aren't calling the nations to be nice people. We're calling them to reject their sin and live for Christ. We're calling the dead to become alive. We're calling hearts of stone to become hearts of flesh. And you don't do that by principles. You don't do that by lists. That is accomplished by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has said He will do that in response to the preaching of the Word. Why He chooses to use the preaching of the Word, we don't know. But He has told us that is the preaching of God's word that the Spirit uses to convict, rebuke, correct, to train in righteousness. Anything less than the gospel will not reveal the secrets of the hearts as it says here. Only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can do that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. 29 years ago, I was an outsider. And I remember it vividly. I went on a retreat with my friend after many times of him asking me to go with his youth group. Uh, I caved because I've told some of you this before. I went to an all-boys school, and there were going to be girls there. So I went to meet girls. Wrong reason altogether. First night, evangelist gets up, and he he says a whole lot of evangelical words I don't understand. Now, look, I grew up in the church, but I grew up in church like this. I didn't hear any of that stuff. And it was a fairly liberal church I grew up in. So I think the most vivid uh, sermon I remember is Stop and Smell the Roses, which I don't know what that has to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But anyway, I digress. I'm there, and he's speaking this language I don't really understand. And they're singing songs that are really cheesy, in my opinion. I don't care for them. And I grit my teeth and I bear it because I'm there to have fun. Second night. God has the intention of doing something. (laughs) I go, I imagine I'm going to bite my tongue through this whole thing where all these crazy fundamentalists are speaking about the Bible and all this stuff. And I see this group has come from the Baptist Student Union. Now the the BCM, the Baptist, Baptist Collegiate Ministries. And they do a skit. Now the skit is not theologically perfect. I'm not here to talk about the theology of the skit. But in the skit, there was a man trapped in a box of sin. I found it rather amusing. And everyone tried to get him out in different ways. Being good. Being nice. Just saying the right things. Fame, money, none of it worked. And I began to get perplexed. And then a man walked up and read to him the gospel from Romans. And then he was able to exit the box. The Spirit took what was portrayed before me and applied it to my heart because I, at that moment, felt very stuck, very trapped, very enslaved by my own sin. I felt the weight of it. And that is the moment when, following that, I understood and began to comprehend what that preacher was saying. And I gave my life to Christ. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Before we could do anything, while we were metaphorically trapped, stuck, Now I gather in a group of people here this morning, there are many of you who have named the name of Jesus Christ. There are many of you who have bent the knee before Jesus Christ. There are many of you who can share in that story and say, I remember the day that Jesus saved my soul. There are many of you here who have grown up in households where you've never known a day where Jesus has not been Savior and Lord, and you walk with him. I would be remiss if I did not at this point say, if you walked into this building today, if you walked into this room, and you were confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ, let me tell you this. You cannot, by your own power, do anything to please God. You are going to be stuck and enslaved until the day you call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you do, he will free you. He will make your heart alive unto him, and your life, like mine, will never be the same. If you are here this morning and you still do not understand or if for the first time you've placed your tr- you want to place your trust in Jesus Christ, I urge you, find me, find someone in this room you know knows the Lord and talk to them about it. Because we are here to proclaim a great Christ. We are not a room full of good people. We are a room full of people who have been made righteous by Jesus Christ. And when the Father sees us, he sees the righteousness of his Son. And when he changes you, he works in you what is pleasing to him. And he will grow you by his Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that the message not only in this church but in in churches around the world will be clear. That we would not be so caught up on Pyrotechnics, or um, just even astounded by the beauty of, of, of someone's gift in and of itself, but that it would all point to you, the gift giver, that it would all point to you, the author of life. We pray that we would be clear about the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that it is only by Him that we are saved, it is only by Him that we are made righteous. So, Father, if there is anyone here today who does not know you, I pray that your Spirit will do what your Spirit did in me and wrestle them to the ground. Bring them to faith. Spiritually make their hearts alive unto you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.